Well, I am very happy that we have a guest speaker today to talk to us about missions. You already heard we have a very ambitious giving goal beyond our normal offerings and an over and above gift toward international missions this year, $170,000. And I've invited Victor Howe to be our speaker today. Victor and his wife, Darlene, they're members of Staples Mill Road Baptist Church. Some of you know them already and others you'll get to know Victor as he shares with us. Victor and his wife, Darlene, and their family serve for, have served for over 20 years with the International Mission Board, 17 of those years living and serving in Asia, where they were sharing the gospel and making disciples and planting churches. And so they have much field experience. And in these days, Victor serves as the Associate Vice President for Global Advance at the International Mission Board, where he works with field leaders to engage global cities, serve the needs of refugees, develop medical mission strategies, and communicate the gospel through stories and narratives. His wife's also on staff at IMB helping people get to the mission field. So we are grateful that they are here. So Victor, you come and bring the word of God to us. We are eager to hear and respond. Thank you, Pastor Jim. It's a joy for me to be here to share with you God's word, to tell of his work and to celebrate God's work among the nations. And Darlene and I are blessed and grateful to be members of this church with you. As Pastor Jim mentioned, our family served in Asia for 17 years. When we left, our daughter had just turned eight and our son was four. And as we raised our children on the field, we were grateful for the support of the IMB, for the excellent care that we receive, the support for our children's education, the medical care that we receive when we battle cancer, and the daily needs of housing and ministry expenses, all made possible because of the generous gifts of Southern Baptists like yourself. So on behalf of 3,500 missionaries and their over 2,600 children, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your partnership. Thank you for praying, for giving. Thank you for sending your very best from within this church to serve among the nations. And thank you for going yourselves to the nations. For the 17 years that we lived overseas, we lived in urban cities and we never had a car. For those 17 years, we would walk, we would take public transportation, we would ride buses, and sometimes we would take the subway if the subway was available, and we would take taxis, lots of taxis. And in the winter months, when the temperature would drop well below zero Fahrenheit, we took taxis because it was a lot warmer than walking on the streets. And one Christmas, I got into a taxi and I said to the taxi driver that Christmas is just a few days away. And I asked the taxi driver if he had heard about Christmas. And he wasn't very clear what Christmas was. And he said, yeah, it's that American holiday where people give gifts to each other. But he didn't know very much about it. So I told him, Christmas celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ as God's gift to us. And then I asked him, do you know who Jesus is? He didn't know very much about Jesus at all. He had never heard 
who Jesus is. And that's the same question that Jesus asked in the passage that we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. And as you turn with me there, let me give you a little bit of the background and set up the setting. Jesus and his followers had just fed over 4,000 people. And that evening, they got into a boat across the Sea of Galilee to the northwestern shores. And the next morning, as they got off the boat, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they found Jesus. And they came and they tried to entrap him with questions. And the crowds also came around Jesus and they brought their sick for Jesus to heal and they wanted to see Jesus perform miracles. And in the midst of the questions from the Pharisees and the crowds pressing around Jesus and the disciples, Jesus decided to take his disciples away from that place. And they went away about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee to a city called Caesarea Philippi. Now, it's important to note that Caesarea Philippi wasn't just another town along the, along the roads, but it was the New Testament equivalent of Sin City, the Las Vegas of their time, a place that was known for immorality and pagan worship. Caesarea Philippi was first recorded by Alexander the Great. When Alexander and his troops were going across that region, they discovered a cave that was very deep, and they heard inside the cave the sound of river flowing somewhere deep inside this cave. And in ancient times, they believed that the pagan gods entered the underworld via streams and river. They also believed that water was a symbol of fertility and a sign for the god Pan, who was the god of fertility. So with the water flowing inside the cave and all that they believed about the entrance to Hades, over time, people started to build temples in that place, temple to the gods, as they came in and out of the underworld, so they thought. And they built a very large temple to Pan, the god of infertility, and the temple practices involved a lot of prostitutions and immoralities, sacrifices of animals, and all sorts of things going on there. Over time, during the Roman Empire, the governor Philip came along, and he wanted to get the attention of Caesar. And so he decided that he was going to build a temple to Caesar along all these other temples. And so he did. He built a temple to Caesar, and he renamed the city after Caesar and himself. And he called it Caesarea Philippi, and that's how the city got its name. And so by the time Jesus and his disciples arrived in this city, they found it to be a wild place of immorality, animal sacrifice, pagan worship. And that's the setting that I want you to keep in mind as we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? In our world today of social media, we post pictures and short videos on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, hoping to get lots of likes. 
I've posted a few times. Not too many people liked it. Maybe you've posted a few times. Maybe you've gotten a few more likes. You know, it's natural. It's human nature for us to want to know what people think about us. We want to know, do they like us? Do they agree with us? Do they understand us? Although it's human nature, of all the people in the world, I would expect that Jesus would not be like that. That Jesus wouldn't care what other people thought of him. But here we are. Jesus brought his disciples to Sin City, sat them down, and asked them, what do people think of me? What's going on? I don't think Jesus asked the question because he worried about his reputation. I think Jesus asked the question because he wanted the disciples to understand who Jesus is much better. In verse 14, the disciples reply that some say Jesus was John the Baptist. Others say Jesus was Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Put yourself in the sandals of a Jewish person living in that time. It's been 400 years since God sent the prophet to speak to you and the nation of Israel. God told you that he would send a savior, but for 400 years, you've heard nothing. No prophet, no savior. All you got was oppression from the Roman emperors and the governors. The people were waiting for a savior for 400 years. But when the savior came, they did not recognize him. Instead, they assumed that Jesus was the latest prophet in a long line of Isaiah's and Jeremiah's and Elijah's. They thought Jesus was the messenger, and they did not realize he was the Savior. The Gospel of John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was in the world, and though it was made through him, the world did not recognize him. In central India, there's a city called Varanasi. It is the epicenter of Hinduism. It's also known as the city of death. In the city, there's over 3,600 Hindu temples scattered across the city. The Hindus believe that if a person died in the city of Varanasi and his ashes are spread in the Ganges River, their souls would gain salvation and freedom from the cycles of death and rebirth. And so people would bring their elderly relatives and their sick friends and family members and bring them into the city. And in the hotels of death, you would see bodies laying there just waiting to die. And last year, when I visited Varanasi, I saw men carrying bodies across the narrow alleys of the city to the banks of the Ganges River. And I saw half-burnt bodies smoldering on the funeral pies burning up. Varanasi is a religious city. It's filled with smoke and ashes, with the stench of death. As I watched the astrologers, the Hindu priests on the banks of the Ganges River performing their rituals, as I watched the peoples in the temples worshiping idols, all I can think in my mind is they're looking for salvation, but they're looking in all the wrong places. Just like the song from Johnny Lee, looking for love in all the wrong places. The people in Varanasi was looking for salvation in all the wrong places. 
the video that we just saw talked about lostness. This is the face of lostness. The greatest problem today is not the war in Gaza or the war in Ukraine, as tragic and horrific as those wars are. It's not homelessness on our streets or the opioid crisis spreading across America. It is not the plight of refugees escaping famine and terrorism. The greatest problem today is lostness because it doesn't end with death. Lostness has eternal consequences. The people who went to Varanasi seeking salvation died without knowing Christ, and they will live eternally separated from God. That's why lostness matters. Our research team tells us that there are over six and a half billion people who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus today. In other words, six and a half billion people do not know how to answer that question, who do you say I am? So Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked them in verse 15, who do you say that I am? Other people may not recognize Jesus as the Savior, but the disciples, they've been with Jesus for the past three years. They've walked with him, they've listened to his teaching, they've seen his miracles. They were there when Jesus healed the blind man. They were there when he raised Nazareth from the dead. They were there when he turned water into wine, and just a few days ago, they saw him feed 4,000 people. And Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? That's the question I asked that taxi driver in December on that day. And that's the question God is asking each one of us today. The Muslims will reply that Jesus is one of the most beloved prophet, but they don't believe Jesus is God. The Hindus will reply that Jesus is the reincarnation of Krishna and Vishnu, their gods. The Dalai Lama once said, Jesus lived a previous life and became an enlightened person through Buddhist practices. Other people would say that Jesus lived a good life, but they discount the miracles and the divinities as mythical stories. A friend of mine in Asia was explaining to a person he had met that Christmas is the celebration of Jesus' birthday. And this person had never heard of Jesus before, and she looked at the pictures on the storefront around them, and there were pictures of Santa Claus plastered on the storefront, and she pointed to the picture, and she asked, is that Jesus? So who do you believe Jesus is this morning? Is Jesus Santa Claus? Is Jesus a beloved prophet? Is Jesus the reincarnation of Buddha? Is he a good man who lived a good life? In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's take a look at these two names that Peter used. First, Peter said, Jesus is the Christ. Now you need to know that Christ is not the last name of Jesus, but Christ is a title that referred to the top boss, the top honcho, the Caesar. The Jewish person would understand the term to refer to their Messiah, the Savior that was promised by God in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah who will save us from a life of sin and guilt, who will redeem us to a restored relationship with the creator of this world. 
And second, Peter said, Jesus is the son of the living God. This means Jesus is divine. He is God incarnate, the holy God who came to earth to reveal the truth of God and demonstrate the power of God. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus, the one and only Son of the living God. Because Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus is the Son of the living God, Jesus alone is qualified to be our Savior and our Redeemer. Jesus alone is able to satisfy the punishment for our sin. Jesus alone is able to be victorious over death. And Jesus alone can be our Savior, our Redeemer, and our Lord. The declaration that Peter gave is the whole reason Jesus came to earth. The whole reason we celebrate Christmas this year. And it is the linchpin of God's redemptive plan for humanity. So I ask you again, who do you say? Jesus is. If you don't know Jesus this morning, or if you're fuzzy about how to answer this question, today is your opportunity to get clarity. Don't go home without understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you believe this this morning, Jesus is your Savior. If you're a follower of Christ, will you tell your neighbor your coworker, your family members this Christmas, and your friends, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because you see, we cannot talk about mission if we don't know Jesus. We cannot know Jesus if we don't carry out the Great Commission. Jesus was the missionary that God sent to earth to tell us the story of salvation. And Jesus continues in verse 17. He answered Peter and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus affirmed that he is truly the Messiah and he is the Son of the living God. Jesus is not the prophet, but he is the fulfillment of the prophet, prophetic words that were said. Jesus is not the messenger telling us about a savior. Jesus is the savior that the messengers were pointing to. And in verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. After Jesus affirmed his divinity, Jesus gave us two promises about his church. The first is that Jesus will establish the church. Jesus didn't look at Peter and tell Peter to go establish the church. He didn't go look at Matthew and say, go start a fundraising campaign so we can build a church. Jesus says, I will build my church. Upon this rock, I will establish my church. This is the first time that church appears in the Bible. And Jesus is introducing this concept, and he promises that he will establish his church. And the rock that will be the foundation is not Peter, the first pope, as the Catholics might believe. The rock is Peter's confession, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son 
of the living God. And Jesus tells us that the church is always established in the midst of darkness and sinfulness. Standing in that place, in view of the temple to the idols, in view of the temple upon, in view of the horrific sacrifices and immorality that were performed around that temple, in view of the lostness and the noise and the sights and sound, Jesus stood up and says, I will establish my church and Satan and his demons will not overcome it. The church is always established in the midst of darkness. Going back to Varanasi, when I was in that city last year, I had a chance to spend an afternoon with a Christian brother. And he told me his story. And he said, when I became a Christian, my family beat me significant and severely. And then they locked me up in solitary for many, many months. But his faith remained steadfast, and eventually his family let him go. And today, this brother is sharing his faith in Christ everywhere he goes, and he helps to lead two churches in that city that's ministering to Muslims and to Hindus. In the midst of spiritual darkness, God is establishing his church. The church that's established in darkness is the light of Jesus Christ that will shine forth as a beacon of hope, pushing back against the edge of lostness. And this is the second promise that Jesus gives us, that the church isn't standing still, but the church is on the move. Jesus paints a picture that the church is advancing against the gates of Hades, and the gates cannot stop the church. Jesus promised that the church will be victorious and the gates will fall and the kingdom of God will be established on earth as it is in heaven. And we're seeing this truth today. We're seeing it not only in Varanasi, but across South Asia, across the rest of Asia, in the Middle East, across Europe, Africa, and Latin America, around the world. In this last year, I visited countries in Europe, in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, and everywhere I've gone. I've seen this reality that the church that Jesus is establishing is advancing forward. Despite the relentless bombings in Ukraine, the church there is also advancing. Since Russia started attacking Ukraine, over 30,000 people have accepted Christ, believed in Christ, and became Christians and joined the family of God. In Kiev, so many people showed up on Sunday to attend church that the church was packed and couldn't hold any more people. And the crowds waited outside in sub-freezing temperature. And when the service ended, the crowd inside the church came out and the crowds outside the church streamed in until the church was full again. And this went on throughout the day for four services, each time crowds coming out and crowds coming in, the church that is established in darkness is pushing back against the edge of lostness. A few weeks ago, I was in the Middle East, and I had a chance to speak to a group of Asian missionaries that were sent from persecuted churches in Asia. And they came from a country that's actively shutting down the church and monitoring their activities. Yet the church continued to remain steadfast and committed to join the Great Commission. These missionaries and their children were being commissioned that day to carry the gospel, and some were going to North Africa, some were going to the Middle East, some were going to South Asia. 
because the church that Jesus established in the midst of darkness is pushing back against lostness and gaining traction around the world. Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not overcome his church, and that's exactly what we see today. Mission starts with the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and it goes until the church led by Christ is pushing back against the edge of darkness and gaining victory over the gates of hell. But Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus continued in verse 19, and he tells Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And in Old Testament times, keys were not used to lock and unlock doors. They were given to signify that whoever received the key received authority, were given authority and responsibility to manage the possessions and the properties. Much like today, a mayor of a city may give a VIP the keys to the city. That key is not meant to unlock anything, but, a symbol, but it is simply a symbol that to honor this person. And in the same way, this was a symbol of the authority that Jesus was giving. At the same time, the term bind and loose did not mean what it means today to tie up or to untie. In those days, the terms were used to portray the scribes, teaching the people what they were allowed to do and what they should not do. And so putting these terms together, Jesus gave Peter a stewardship responsibility to proclaim the gospel message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And whoever believed and received this truth would be in the kingdom of God and join the church that Jesus established. And today, this is exactly the role that God has given us in missions. God has commanded us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, and he has called us to be part of the church. This is God's command to you and to me. This is God's command to this church, Stables Mill, and this is the role that this church is playing. And this church is sending out missionaries to do just that and supporting the IMB to send out missionaries to do exactly that. The work of mission begins with the gospel and leads to the church pushing back against lostness. But while we celebrate the advance of the church and we praise God for his promises, there was never any doubt that God would do what God has said he would do and fulfill his promise. The question isn't whether God will do what he says he will do. The question is, will we be obedient to the command that God has given us? God has called us to proclaim his gospel, to make disciples among those who are lost. And while the church is advancing against lostness, there are still six and a half billion people today who do not know Christ. That's what darkness is. That's what lostness is. Our research team tells us that among these six and a half billion people, there are over 3,000 people groups who are unreached and unengaged. That means these people groups do not have the gospel in their midst and that there's no concerted effort to bring the gospel to their midst. And last year at the IMB, we launched a program to call out Southern Baptists to send 300 explorers who will go and find these unreached and unengaged people groups, who will discover the state of the gospel amongst them, 
who will go and find out, are there any believers? Do they have a church? What do they believe in? What language do they speak? How will we bring the gospel to them? And over this past year, we have sent out nine explorers, and they're going after 75 of these people groups. Two months ago in West Africa, I had breakfast with one of these explorers. He had just come back from an 11-day trek out in the back country of West Africa. He and a national partner who spoke the local language went together, and they shared the gospel among villagers and village chiefs. One man accepted Christ, and they met another man who was trying to start a church in one of the villages. But we need 291 more explorers. Will you join these explorers on a two-year journey to bring the gospel to the lost, to push back darkness to, so that these 3,000 unreached and unengaged people groups might know Jesus? Around the world today, there's 110 million forcibly displaced peoples. These are people that are forced out of their homes, not of their own choosing, but because of famine, because of persecution because of civil wars and military attacks, they have been pushed out of the cities and their homes. And our research tells us that 60% of these refugees will end up in the urban areas around the world. So as they embark on the refugee journey, God is moving them from a place where they had less access to the gospel to a place where they will have greater access to the gospel. But who will bring the gospel to them? Will you join us? to bring the gospel to these refugees, to demonstrate the love of Christ to them and proclaim the truth of Christ so that they will know Jesus. And in the cities, we don't just find refugees. We find people across every strata of society, the rich and the poor. But the reality around the world is that the, the church is largely being planted among the poor and the working class. As Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Will you bring your workplace skills, the experience you have in the workplace, to other workplace professionals to share your life story and to share the story of Jesus with them? Today in Africa, the median age is 19. That means half the population of the countries of Africa are under the age of 19, half of the countries. So if you're a young person today, there's lots of opportunities for you to connect with people just like you. Not only in Africa, but in Asia, in Latin America, across the Middle East, the youth need the gospel. And for them, the public square is not a physical space in the center of town, but the public square is social media and the metaverse. Who will go and bring the gospel to them online and offline to introduce them to Jesus? So around the world, we still see darkness. Around the world, there are the unreached and unengaged, the youth, the refugees, the urban professionals, they're lost, and they do not know, they do not know Christ this Christmas. And will you join us in this great pursuit to seek out the lost, and to push back darkness. This is the invitation that Jesus gave and that Jesus continues to give today for us to join in the greatest work given to mankind, to proclaim the gospel, to join the church, to push back against lostness so that every nation, every people, 
every tribe and every language will one day stand before the throne and worship the King of Kings. How will you respond to the call that God is giving us today? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word that teaches us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, our Lord. We thank you for your promise that you are establishing your church and it is advancing against darkness and calling the lost to salvation. And we pray that those who are here today who do not yet know Christ, that they will know Christ. And we pray that those of us who do know Christ will proclaim Christ in the name that is above every name. In the name of Jesus, we pray.